1: The Convention on Biological Diversity, at its 15th Conference of the Parties in Montreal, adopted a decision on digital sequence information on genetic resources, by which it established as part of the Kunming-Montreal Global Biodiversity Framework, a multilateral mechanism for benefit sharing from the use of digital sequence information on genetic resources, included a global fund to do this, the decision also established a working group tasked to further develop the multilateral mechanism and provide recommendations that will be considered at the upcoming COP16. Cultural Survival Travel to Geneva, where we spoke to Katie Lee Riddle.
0: Kia ora, toku maunga, ko te koronga toku iwi ko Katie Lee toku ingoa. So great to be speaking to you today, my name is Katie Lee and I'm part of the Roa Ewi Iwi on the east coast of Aotearoa, New Zealand. Uh, I'm here as part of the Aotearoa Indigenous Rights Trust, but in my day-to-day life I'm a Māori academic working at Te Kotahi Research Institute at the University of Waikato. Uh, my background is in Indigenous intellectual property law and data sovereignty, and I also work alongside local contexts which host the traditional knowledge and biocultural notices and labels. Here at the Convention on Biological Diversity, I've been working on Article 8J and DSI. In particular for me, uh, access and benefit sharing and the importance of provenance metadata.
1: We asked Katie Lee why we needed a multilateral mechanism for benefit sharing from the use of digital sequence information on genetic resources.
0: Personally, I think that the multilateral system comes from a lack of provenance metadata. In these discussions, that's also being referred to as country of origin. It's actually my opinion that a hybrid system would be better for indigenous people and local communities, as bilateral benefit sharing promotes direct relationship building between parties, stronger mutually agreed terms, and more benefits directly to the communities that provide traditional knowledge and genetic resources from their lands. It also promotes the sovereignty of our people to have a better say over the research that affects our lives. So, however, the reality of digital sequence information is that it's much more broad than, say, the traditional thought of a singular community and a singular group of researchers working together. And also genetic resources don't usually reside in a single area, you know, birds migrate across lands and countries, plants grow across borders, fish swim, etc. So genetically speaking, also, a lot of our DNA sequence data is also very similar. So the special source of what makes a a species unique is usually relatively small, next to the vast expanse of nucleotides that a single DNA strand contains. So also when researchers are aggregating this data, or creating new digital sequence information, or you don't know where the original genetic material was collected from, it gets much harder to identify who the benefits of the utilisation of the knowledge should flow to, or who, who even have a conversation with. So, this is where a multilateral system has its benefits. Uh, it creates like a, a simpler approach that can create a much larger pool of money that can flow to communities. So, there's a range of reasons that multilateral mechanisms could be beneficial. If the mechanism and the fund are purpose-built for Indigenous people and local communities by us, there is the potential that this could give benefits back to our people who might have never seen a monetary or non-monetary benefit from something like this in the first place. Essentially DSI currently is like a wild west and there's, there's nothing really currently in place on how to ma- manage that and navigate it. So even just having something in place and testing it and learning how to navigate it together, it, it could bring more equity into the arena.
1: Katie Lee also told us who she thought the primary beneficiaries of the Global Fund established as part of this multilateral mechanism is.
0: Initially it was looking like IPLC, well Indigenous Peoples and Local Communities as is the long term, would be the primary beneficiaries of the fund, but as the negotiations have continued this has become much wider. So instead the money is currently looking to be directed towards activities in general that support the conservation and sustainable use of biodiversity and the implementation of national biodiversity strategies and action plans, and in particular, in developing countries. So the prioritisation of who gets funding is going to be based on a range of factors at the moment, such as the level of that country's development, the self-identified needs of the Indigenous people and local communities that reside there, the level of richness of biodiversity of a country, their capacity levels, regional balances, and the ability for the recipients of that fund to be able to use the funds effectively. This, however, is going to be debated this way and that, so there's really no way to know where we're going to be landing on this. So I think this is something that we're going to have to watch this space. There's also talk about whether Indigenous people and local communities should be able to access the funds directly themselves, or whether it should go to some kind of national entity that then hands it on to them as they see fit.
1: We then asked Katie Lee what she thought some of the most important issues being discussed at these meetings were that directly impacted the rights of Indigenous peoples.
0: In terms of receiving funds, the worry here for us is really a range of things. For example, a mega diverse country might be developed or developing. Take for example or New Zealand, it's considered developed and it's also mega diverse. Alongside this, what do we mean as developed in this instance? For example, there were some traditionally developed countries that actually couldn't afford to send delegates here to these meetings in the first place. So, do we then assume that because they are developed, they shouldn't be a priority to receive funds? And on top of that, there's also this worry that many countries don't recognize the rights of their own Indigenous people and local communities. So, can they trust that if we can't directly access the funds, Will these national entities actually direct the funds to where it needs to go? Can we trust that? There's also a need to make sure that the fund is set up in a way that's effective. It needs to be able to generate enough funds for people to actually see the benefits flowing to them in a monetary and non-monetary way. So should contributions to the fund be mandatory or voluntary? And if it's mandatory, how do we decide at what point along use of this data you have to give the money? Throughout history indigenous people and local communities have influenced the biodiversity around us and we know this right. We've selectively bred plants and animals, we've migrated with them and domesticated various species and we through our own traditional methods and expertise have changed the world around us. And this is reflected in the way that we change DNA as well. We are the scientists in real time and historically and today indigenous peoples are researchers, academics, innovators, environmental protectors and defenders. So we're finally beginning to be appreciated for what we have always known. We know how to live in harmony with nature. We know how to look holistically at Mother Earth. At the end of the day, what really matters for this fund is that everyone recognizes that indigenous people and local communities are the custodians of biodiversity, and we are worth being invested in as such.
1: Lastly, we ask you to leave if there's enough capacity and access to information among Indigenous peoples on the rights of Indigenous peoples related to digital sequencing information.
0: I think there's a lot of information already out there for DSI, if you're familiar with things like SING, the Summer Internship for Indigenous People in Genomics. There's a lot of initiatives already out there which aim towards capacity building for our people by our people. However, what I see in terms of capacity is two major issues. Firstly, we are all so busy fighting for our rights and our lives in so many ways and in so many spaces all the time. It's hard to conceive that international, high-level discussions on DSI are important when back home your people are actively fighting for their lives, lands and waters, and trying to make enough money to simply get by, or fighting for their livelihoods on the ground. Not only that, but a lot of our people do this kind of work for free, because we recognize the spiritual and holistic value of our biodiversity. So if this multilateral fund can actually help our people on the ground, that's a good thing. Uh, Secondly, for those of us who do have the capacity and knowledge on DSI, we don't always have the diplomatic and adversarial skills to get stuck into these negotiations in an effective way. Handling these complex processes and knowing how to intervene, and when, and how to speak up and use our voices even when our hands are shaking, it's not an easy thing. And when you understand those complexities, the stakes can feel much higher for us because we stand to lose the most from the loss of our rights. So it can get emotionally charged when you feel like you're going into bad for your own people, and in ways that your people back home may never truly understand. So the work is deeply important, and it's now more than ever we need to support our young people and give them the training that they need to enter these arenas. I do have hope, though. I'm seeing more and more young people getting inspired and wanting to get involved. So hopefully with time and more capacity building, the next generations will be prepared and supported to take on the work in the future. And I think that's a positive thing. I think we can do it.
1: For more on the rights of Indigenous peoples, visit cs.org and follow Cultural Survival on Facebook and Twitter.